This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together, we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Well, I don't know about you, but around this time of year, I'm hanging out for a long weekend. Doesn't it feel as if we seem to hit a public holiday drought between Anzac Day in April and the October long weekend with only the Queen's, sorry, the King's birthday in June to keep us going? So what if every weekend was a long weekend? I asked a few of you what you thought. In 2018, Kiwi entrepreneur Andrew Barnes read that most people only really focus at work around one to one and a half hours a day. So he decided to see what would happen if he got everyone to squeeze their work week into four instead of five days. Well, as you'd have noticed from the news, which seems to have been covering four-day weeks pretty regularly over the last little while, the results are well known, with workers loving it and a growing number of employers finding increased morale and productivity. So much so, it's been trialled around the world, with the Australian Senate recently commissioning an inquiry into its viability here. Andrew and his partner Charlotte Lockhart were so impressed with the results, they've started a global campaign for the four-day week, and they join us now to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for joining me because I was worried that this might be one of the days that um, you have off. <laughs> well, we work a flexible week, so we we work we work reduced rather than a holiday. Well, it is my day off, but I came in specially. <laughs> well, I was joking, but yes, it's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's the productive outcome you're truly looking for, and empower their people to achieve that. And then when people know what they're really at work for, you know, the mission is not a mission statement on the door, but something that they fully understand and get uh, done every day, they they can do their jobs more efficiently. And because you're giving the incentive of time off, they're really motivated to, to be efficient and productive in the time that they have available. Most companies and managers would assume that the best way to lift productivity is to work more, more hours, more days. How does working less days or hours increase it? Well, so actually what um, managers that when they think that it needs to, that people need to work more, are missing the fact that the human body and our psychology is such that we actually, forcing us to work more doesn't make us more productive. But when you 
join one of our programs and we uh, teach businesses how to really measure and and improve productivity and get buy-in from their people through that process and also adding in the added incentive that they're going to get more time with their families and their their communities. They really buy into being more productive and, and just getting on with it. So what were the results for you, Andrew, when you implemented the four-day week at Perpetual Guardian? How soon did you start seeing results in terms of lifts in productivity or profitability? Almost immediately. So we saw uh, productivity went up 25%. Um, stress levels dropped 15%. More people said they were better able to do their job working four days rather than five. And our sick days halved. And we saw that almost from the get-go, the minute that we initiated the program. So what is the 180-100 model and how does it work? Okay, well, the 180-100 model was was developed because, as most people that are listening go, I can't close my business for a whole day. And we're actually saying don't try. What we're looking for is a meaningful reduction in time, 80%, without reduction in pay, 100%. 80% time, but 100% productivity. So there's no loss to the business and no impact on the customers, no loss of pay to the, to, to the employees, but a meaningful reduction in time. This gives us the ability to manage people who are working part-time into the program, also, but also people who are working more than, you know, a standard work week. So how does it work? So how does the four-day work how does the four-day week work with flexible work hours? Is it based on total days or total hours? And what is the total number of hours that people have to commit to the company on that model of the 80, 100, 80, 100? Well, it's, it's 80% of the time that they're working now. So if they're working 20 hours, then it's dropping down um, by four. If it's uh, if you're working a 40-hour week, then that's dropping down to 32 hours. If you're working a 50, 60-hour week, then it, you know it's dropping down. So it's about having a meaningful reduction, but keeping the productivity at the same. The clickbait on this, of course, is the four-day week everybody understands um, because it makes it very, very easy. But as Charlotte says, in reality, it's about reducing working hours, not just closing for a day. Would it be possible to maintain or increase productivity with even less work hours? Go for it. Do it. Well, why? I mean, what has hours got to do with output? And I think this is at the heart of where our journey started. Just because you're sitting in a desk or at a factory for a period of time doesn't mean that you're actually productive. And that early piece of research that I looked at indicated that productivity, true productivity, not busyness, was about two and a half to three hours a day. So potentially, you are getting a week's work of output out of 15 hours. Where where can I sign up to work for you two? (laughs) At (laughs) fourdayweek.com. Now, you've conducted heaps of trials around the world. Where have you had the four-day week trialed around the world? Okay, so we've completed trials in Ireland, UK, North America uh, and Australasia, New Zealand and Australia. Um, we've got trials currently running in Europe and a, a, a specific Portugal carve-out, uh, South Africa, Brazil uh, and just doing Australasia again. 
and another one's coming and, in Israel, and, and and one's coming in Israel, and Ireland's re- recruiting at the moment, and we've got a North American, another North American one starting in July. So uh, just pretty much all the time, and we want to be in Asia by the end of the year. So what were the results? Were they, you know, across the board? pretty similar or were they specific to, say, particular cultures or countries? You know, for example, Europe has a much more enlightened attitude towards work than, say, countries like India or Japan. Um, so, I, I think the, 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 the bosses that have come on board in those countries like India and Japan, they, they are agile thinkers uh, and they are looking for a, a better workplace. So the results are the same because... The, uh, the 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 leaders have bought into it. How you cut through into those cultures into a much larger program, I think, is right. You, you, there are aspects of it that will be more challenging. What we're interested in, of course, with our South Africa and Brazil, of course, is these are developing countries with quite different um, economies as well. So it'll be interesting to see what the results are that come out from that. What are the challenges in terms of implementing a four-day week? You know, I I noticed that one participant in your recent Australasian trial said that they'd tried and failed at starting a four-day week. Why did they fail? Did they say why? And and what are some of the challenges for companies implementing a four-day week? So timing usually is the main reason why companies don't manage to get it across the line. Uh, and, and, you know, within a business, there could be all sorts of things that happen that just mean that the timing is not right. The other thing that uh, that happens sometimes is there's a change of ownership or, or you know, private capital comes off board and, and, or a change of leadership and, and, and they just don't want to do it, so, so they, they stop it. Um, and then, then occasionally, what happens is, and and this is what happened with a number of companies that that did it, you know, sort of at the same time as us or before us, where they, where the business leader, with all the right intentions, was very specific about how it was going to go. We're having Fridays off, and it's going to look like this, and without actually having the agile thinking that goes in the background, you can't cope with business change. Um, economic change or, I don't know, a pandemic. I think one of the difficulties often is that the leadership team has got to buy into this completely. Henry Ford is credited as saying, you know, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. And so the problem is people make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they don't believe it and they don't walk the talk, then quite often they can kill the initiative, um, you know, stone dead. Now, you've got some really impressive um, take-up, you know, 56 out of 61 companies or organisations in the UK, a 96% success rate among companies in Australia. It's very impressive, but I guess why didn't that, you know, five group, five? why didn't those five companies in the UK or that 4% of companies in Australia keep going? Why didn't it work for them? Well, so this is the thing. Sometimes it's just about timing for for, for many businesses. Uh, so we, so if you if you um, join a pilot program with us and the timing doesn't work for you, you are always welcome to join another pilot program and another at another time. And so that tends to be the sort of thing that happens there. Um, you, one one of the companies, the the business owner got very sick. And it, it all just got too hard to integrate within the business while this person was going through illness. So it, it, there are, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that sit in the background there. But in reality, 
you know, businesses with a five-day week, some succeed and some fail. So what you've got to do is look at the big picture here. You know, 90% plus are succeeding in doing a model that conventional wisdom says doesn't work. So I think we've got to focus on that side rather than the other side because businesses fail to do a lot of things as a consequence of, of economic activity, as timing, as Charlotte said, but also failures in leadership and delivery. What kind of companies or industries does the four-day week suit best? I mean, I'm kind of thinking that there might be some sectors or professions where it might not apply, like, say, for example, emergency department doctors who work very brutal hours. Would they be able to work or or move to a four-day week? Well, they absolutely will. I mean, there's obviously some major adjustments that need to be done in the organisation, but let's face it, do you want to be managed by the emergency doctor that's been on a 16-hour shift or the one that's been on a five, you know, is on a four-day week? And and so therefore the quality of care that you that you would expect will go up. Sometimes these things have, have a, just a bit of a tail to get there. But and, you, and if you've looked, at, you'll see that Queensland is currently advertising for doctors uh, from overseas and suggesting that if you move to Queensland, you will only have to work 10 days a month. So clearly you can. Okay, you've sold me on the four-day week. I need no more convincing. Um, Obviously, you know, you've done the research and it improves morale, it reduces stress, it increases productivity. But day to day, what are the key things a four-day week can do to improve my working day? Well, so I call it the delicious circle of happiness. So you you come and work at a, a company that is looking to meaningfully reduce work time and you feel better about that. You feel part of a team. You go home and your partner says to you, honey, how was your day? You say, I've had a great day. And there you are. You're even being nice. You're being nice to your partner. You might even be nice to the children. You go to sleep uh, and our research says that you'll get better sleep. And, you're, and you'll wake up more rested. Your partner says, how did you sleep? You say, it was great. Oh, and there you go, being nice to your partner again, and you might even be nice to the kids. And you bring that happy person back to work, and then you are more productive and happier at work, and then you go home. And it, it circles around. Once you've been working reduced time for a little period of time, you actually then start doing meaningful things with that time, taking out hobbies, doing things that are important to you, and then you add in another layer of happiness. And so you feel productive at work, feel happy at work, and it cycles around to your whole life and it makes your entire life better, not just your work life. Who would have thought that healthier, happier, more rested staff would be more productive? I do have to tell you there's one thing I really loved when you talked about some of the key benefits of a four-day week and that was making meetings shorter. I hate meetings. How does a four-day week shorten meetings and make them more useful? Well, one of the easy things you can do is go into your calendar and change your meeting allocated time to half an hour. You'll find that instantaneously you save yourself half an hour in every meeting. We've allowed Microsoft to determine the length of our meetings. Now, if you do that, you shorten meetings, as Microsoft Japan proved themselves, keeping meetings to half an hour increased productivity by 39.9%. Now, as you point out quite rightly, the world used to work six days a week and the weekend only started about 100 years ago and we only came down to an officially mandated 38-hour week around that time. 
How soon do you think before we get like a three or a two-day week? And do you think there'll always be a minimum number of hours or days that we'll have to work? Look, um, so there's some research from Brendan Birchall, who's one of our researchers based out of Cambridge University, and he's actually studied just this, it's how much work we actually need to feel uh, meaningful, and it's 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 um, a little bit more for, for, for women than it is for men, uh, which is quite a surprising thing. But we, you know, with any luck, I mean, AI, we, AI is going to remove the need for a lot of work. We're going to need to be able to frame our lives so we still feel like we have meaning. But uh, who's to say? I mean, the technology is out there. It's, it's possibly scary, but then also possibly a little exciting. And there is always a social need for people to come together. And part of working is not just about doing stuff. It's doing stuff with people. But as Charlotte said, you need to have a minimum amount of work to feel valued. And if you go back to John Maynard Keynes, he estimated we'd get by on 15 hours a week. By now. You're on The Next Shift with me, Sunil Badami, on Disrupt Radio. I'm with Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart, the founders of 4dayweek.com, who started the first four-day week in their business in 2018 and now spreading the good news across the world. We'll be back after this break. So I guess the big question is, is how many days a week do you both work on 4dayweek.com? Well, we, um, we, we, Andrew and I are quite fortunate. We, we don't sort of schlep ourselves off to an office every day. We work a very flexible, uh, a very flexible week. But I, I mean, so I wouldn't work more than about 25 hours a week. And 4dayweek.com is not our business, of course. 4dayweek.com is our campaign. Um, and yeah, we're putting in a lot of hours on in terms of uh, pilot programs around the world, doing an awful lot of media, often at very antisocial hours. But you know what? So you only get one chance to change the world. And this at the moment is ours. I'm looking forward to the public holiday they name after you on the fifth day of every work week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be a public holiday every yeah. every Friday because <laughs> we've all shifted to a four-day week. Now, there's advice on 4dayweek.com about how employees can approach their managers or bosses to start a four-day week. What advice would you give to a manager or a boss thinking about a four-day week, about the benefits that might come to them in terms of implementing, you know, getting uh, people to work less? Well, I think the starting point is go to the website. I would like to say go and buy a copy of my book, but I probably can't. But, okay. but go to the website and there are lots and lots of good stuff on the website and understand what it is. You know, this is not just about work-life balance. This is about a very sensible, rational business strategy that will improve your productivity, lower things like sick days, make it far easier to attract and retain staff. And your biggest risk often in business is not going to be implementing a four-day week. It's going to be your biggest competitor doing it first. So this is really the key thing for, for business leaders. Don't view this as some, you know, crazy work-life balancing, everybody happy uh, concept. 
focus on this as something how you can use this to materially improve your business. And you get all the work-life balance stuff for free. Mm, I mean, you, and when you're talking to your boss about it, then you've got to understand what motivates your boss or, or, and what your boss is accountable for. So, you know, they, they'll, they'll obviously be accountable to a budget and so therefore you're, you, you know, you, you've got to ensure that that's not going to be impacted adversely. Um, but and, and then look at, you know, what are the other motivators that, that they have and, and talk to those points. Episode 24. Where do you think the, what do you think the next shift in work is going to be? What do you think the big trends in work might be over the next few years? Flexible, remote and reduced. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, there, you can see a trend, however, towards people going to the office to socialise and doing their work at home. Uh, and that's something that we've been thinking about for a while. You know, the, the social aspects of work have to be structured so you get the most out of it. But often it may be for a lot of people, certainly office work, that you could do your work more effectively remotely. But it's rethinking the purposes of what the office is for and what home is for. What do you say to those CEOs like, say, Elon Musk, who have been calling for people to come back into the office because they believe that collaboration works better in person? But he's not necessarily having a whole pile of people that are actually collaborating. I would suggest most of his people are coders who don't necessarily need to collaborate. Elon Musk just wants people in the office because that's what he wants. Um, but, you know, my, you know my, my big saying is, is to say that, you know, as as, uh, as business leaders, we need to remember that we borrow our people from their lives. So having a conversation with your people around how work fits into their lives without it dominating their lives will actually give you all the pathways necessary to find your future of work passion. And I think it's important to think about what are the implications of things like the 100-hour work week that Elon Musk, who then arguably doesn't pay tax in most jurisdictions, um, means to society. And what that means is that society picks up the tab for the mental health issue that we've got, the breakdown in families that we have, um, the environmental issues that we've got. You know, at a point in time, we have to find better, a better way to move forward. Um, and it shouldn't come at the, the cost of the employee. If you're sitting at the top of the tree getting all the benefits of all the efforts of your employees, of course you might take a view that you want to work them until they drop. You would. You get profits. But actually I think we've got to be better than that as leaders. And I think we've got to think about how we, we win but how we find a way in which our employees win as well. This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Well, as you heard from four-day week pioneers Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart, the results of trials around the world are in, and they're pretty positive. But are they all they're made out to be? Our next guest has conducted extensive research on what economist John Maynard Keynes called the leisure society, the idea that as technology got more and more efficient, we'd have to work less and less. 
but he reckons that there might still be questions to ask about how the four-day work week works and that there might actually be a solution right in front of us already. Adjunct Professor Tony Veal has dedicated his career to the field of leisure studies about how we spend our time outside work on recreation, travel, hobbies, sports and other fun stuff, as well as the industries and professions that might serve those pursuits. He's written a number of books, including most recently 2019's Whatever Happened to the Leisure Society, which explores why John Maynard Keynes' predictions haven't happened yet. Tony, why do you think we're talking about work so much lately? You know, the great resignation, quiet quitting, the four-day week. Why is work such a big topic right now? Well, I think it's really to do with the pandemic. It seems to have coincided with that. And I think, you know, that strange phenomenon many people hadn't experienced before being able to work from home, I think just got people just wondering about why we do things the way we do at the moment. Um, and the idea of a four-day week and all sorts of other things, reduced work hours, I've been around for a long time, but it wasn't a hot topic until the pandemic came along. Episode 24, The Next Shift. What do you think the next big shift or movement in work will be? I've looked at the thing from a historical point of view um, of tracing the reduction in working hours right from the beginning of the 20th century. And there was a massive reduction from about 60 to 70 hours a week right at the beginning of the 20th century and got down to the 40-hour week plus holidays and so on by about the middle of the 20th century in the 50s and 60s. And then for some reason or other, um, that whole thing stopped um, somewhere in the 70s and 80s. It had been a long, from the beginning of the 19th century, actually, a long process to say that workers would negotiate as well as increased pay, that part of the bargaining would be reduced working hours and increased holidays. And that suddenly stopped. For a long time, for instance, the Australian trade unions were much more concerned with flexibility, especially with the women coming into the labour force, and that preoccupied them for a long time. And shorter working hours wasn't on the agenda. Uh, but it's, it's come on to the agenda now. Episode 11, Four Day Weeks. In the 1930s, John Maynard Keynes speculated that thanks to technological progress, we'd have a leisure society with the possibility of a 15-hour work week within two generations from the time he wrote it. And John Kenneth Galbraith built on that with the affluent society in the 50s and 60s. But despite productivity rising, according to some estimates, between 70% and 500% since the 1970s, we seem to be working more hours than ever before. Now, You wrote Whatever Happened to the Leisure Society in 2019. So, Tony, what ever happened to the Leisure Society? Well, in a way, um, as you suggest, um, people have said that Keynes was correct in one respect, in that, especially if you make alliances for the war uh, and the the Depression, Great Depression, that um, we, we were heading towards Massive, a massive increase in wealth per capita. Um, and therefore we could trade off more working hours because the pressing need to solve the likes of poverty and that sort of thing wouldn't be around. That was Keynes thinking. Uh, well, two things apart. One is 
we seem not to have been able to solve the problem of poverty. And so if you listen to governments, they'll always say we need to increase wealth in order to solve the problems of poverty and roads and hospitals and all those things. Well, we've already got enough money to do that if we distribute it, um, the current resources adequately or appropriately. Um, but the other thing is the Keynes didn't understand because he was talking about we will have enough to provide for our basic needs. What he didn't really understand was that something called basic needs is constantly changing. And something like um, uh, a mobile phone is pretty well a basic need, as is um, bathrooms in houses and so on, and motor cars and all these sorts of things, um, uh, air conditioning, uh, central heating. These things just weren't even around when um, Keynes was speaking. Let alone, or they might be in the sort of houses that Keynes moved around in, but certainly it wasn't part of the... Now, we always look at, say, for example, countries in Europe, like the Nordic countries or Germany, who have historically, you know, had far fewer working hours per week, according to the OECD averages, and far longer holidays than countries like America, Japan, or even Australia. You know, France shuts down for three months over summer. So why have countries, some countries in Europe who work far fewer hours been able to have productivity comparable to or competitive with countries like Japan, South Korea, or even Australia, where a lot of people work extremely long hours? I can only make a few informal observations, and there are other people who looked at this much more closely. But, um, they, for example, Germany, I think, um, would probably be the country that's done the most to invest in technology and automation and, and, and efficiency and that sort of thing. Um, uh, France, I would suggest the quality of life and the long lunches and celebrating the cuisine and all. I mean, there are things more important to the French, it would seem, necessarily than an extra buck. You know, there's a lifestyle issue. And, and the, they, Scandinavians, it seems to me, have picked up on the other thing, which is um, part of them having some luck with North Sea oil and and, uh, and allocating it very sensibly. Um, they've um, they've actually done much better uh, solving the poverty problem and the inequality problem. So they are happy with fifty percent of their incomes going into government services rather than thirty percent like this in. Um, certainly in North America and Australia. Um, and that has seemed to me solves part of the, the part of the problem of, 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 of the, you know, social problems, which, which surround all these issues. And there have been lots of trials and reports on the success of the four day week, um, with apparently very high uptake by companies and lots of countries around the world trialing the four day week. But You've had some issues with the methodologies and results. Why? Well, it's both the, the some of the methodologies, um, but also the um, uh, the substance of of, of because there's a movement now. There's a strong movement um, for um, the four day week, being led by um, um, entrepreneurs and, and and think tanks and so on, who are really pushing the ideas, and they're very enthusiastic. And um, they don't necessarily, see, well, I don't think they necessarily see all the problems, but you know, why should they? They're pushing, the, they're, they're campaigning, as it were, for it. 
Yeah, uh, and we uh, talked we talked to Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockwood yeah. from fourdayweek.com exactly. earlier in the episode. Well, um, now, and of course he's not an academic, but he's brought academics in to do the studies. So I've looked at the studies and they're, they're, they're a good start. I mean, at least they're doing studies and monitoring what they're doing, but they're, they're, they're limited, except for the one British one, which has got quite a large sample. Um, a lot of the other samples, like the one done in Australia and one done in, in, in Ireland, um, and, and even what they've done in the United States is very small samples, just handfuls of, of companies. And my, my criticism methodology, and again, it's, it's not, it's not a fundamental criticism. It's just one of those practicalities of doing this sort of research. They, 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 they do surveys at the start of the, the trial, which is usually six months long. Um, sometimes in the middle as well. And at the end, and that's fine. Um, but two things really as far, and they survey the workers and the managers uh, or owners. In the case of the uh, workers, you often find there's a fall off between the first survey and the final survey. And that's not always very clear. You've got to kind of dig around in the survey re- reports to find what was the actual number of people at the end who were still answering the questionnaire. And it's quite, a, it's sometimes only about a half. And, and in the case of the managers, they'd also seem to be about that, that much. Um, and so you're wondering about the ones who have, haven't answered the second questionnaire. Is that because they didn't get around with it? Or are they the ones that are quite less enthusiastic about it? In the case of the companies, because of the nature of the companies that tend to be involved, there's very little manufacturing, for instance. Um, where you can measure output and say, yes, we have, have not lost productivity. Whereas when it's, um, office based work, sometimes you can measure output, but sometimes not. And a lot of times they've used, um, uh, revenue, um, rather than output. So, so you increase revenue if you increase your prices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and you could have less output and still have increasing revenue in certain circumstances. And, you know, given that it's been an inflationary period, who knows? So I think there's going to need to be a lot more precision in the data that are being collected. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that most of the um, organisations who trialled the four-day week were office-based, you know, services mm. or knowledge-based. And Elon Musk recently came out in his call for people to return to the office, calling working from home and flexible work practices as immoral when many other workers, especially blue-collar workers or service workers, couldn't enjoy those privileges. So are there any potential effects in regards to inequality that a four-day week might have with white-collar workers being able to work whenever they like, wherever they like, and an increasing number of, you know, casual gig workers or blue-collar workers not having that same flexibility? Yeah. But, well... There's there's an inequality aspect to it, and there's also just almost the practicalities aspect to it as well. But they, and they and they overlap. That is that um, historically, um, certain industries have often led the way in terms of working conditions, working hours, wages, and so on. So often because they're highly unionized or with a lot of power. So for steel workers in the United States, power workers, highly unionized. They set the pace in terms of, um, of, of wages and, and conditions. 
because uh, they're highly productive, highly profitable. And so the, the workers could call the shots because management were uh, raking in the money and the profits. And so they could afford to avoid industrial disputes by paying the workers more. Now, what happens then is that both market processes come into play. So other industries find they can't attract the workers because they're not paying the going rate. Um, and equally, other workers in other industries say, it's unfair, we should be getting some of these benefits as well. You know, like holidays, it would have been in the past, or, or reduced working hours or wages. But it's not instantaneous. And and the, the problem is with the current situation or the current movement is that they seem to be relying on, um, let's say, that's certain types of industries where uh, creatives, office-based, and so on, where it would seem from the evidence we do have that people can uh, put their heads down, concentrate, and not be interrupted, and do five days work in four days. Now, that may be true in these sorts of environments. I'm not sure it's true in a lot of manufacturing. Similarly, you've got things like supermarkets and so on, where, um, okay, we can uh, automate checkouts, um, but there's a limit to it. Eventually, you're dealing with human beings and face to and all sorts of other face-to-face um, situations and 24-hour operations. They can't close down for three days if you're in a, in a power station or, um, or transport or... Uh, we noticed in the pandemic, the whole issue of keeping the trucks moving was a 24, seven days, uh, 24, seven days a week, um, operation. Um, now if those industries adopt the four day week, what it is to them is purely a cost of about 20% increase in wages because what they're really doing is paying, um, people for four days work. Um, and they're not doing five days. You can't ride trucks. <laughs> We've already got limitations to what hours people drive trucks, for example. Um, so what they'd have to do is have more truck drivers and uh, in order to cover the hours. You know, there's 20% increase. That's an increase in costs. Well, um, so different industries, different horses for different courses. As you pointed out before, you know, it had taken about 100 years or more for workers to finally get Saturdays off and the concept of the That's weekend... Right, yeah. And people used to work 60 hours a week, you know, instead of 38 hours a week in the 1900s and 1920s. Um, so how soon before we do get a four-day week? And how soon before we might even get a three- or even two-day week, given that you've called for 15-hour work weeks? The historical record from the certainly beginning of the 20th century to about 1960, was about a reduction of about three hours per decade. Um, so if you're re- going to reduce by um, eight hours, if you carried on do- as the previous process had been, and that, that was with an awful lot of struggle and strikes and lockouts and God knows what, and, and, and employers resisting the thing at every move and saying the sky will fall in. So this didn't just happen. It's about three hours a decade were cut off the working week. Uh, well, to do eight hours, you're talking two and a half days, 25 years or more. Um, uh, 
So that's that's the sort of challenge, which uh, uh, which which well, well, that would be to repeat the miracle of the first half of the twentieth century. No, it did. I guess the big issue is is that um, we can have flexible work. And recently, a gig work platform talked about how it offered flexibility to its workers. But I guess the big issue is is that that flexible work is often casual or gig work with no protections or benefits. So how can we avoid that kind of um, often exploitative casualization while reducing hours? Well, I, I in one sense, I, I, I mean, this is why it's so complicated, um, all this, because um, a lot of these processes are happening at the same time. And one one of the one of the things is the the gig work we've known is has also been happening while you know in the last decade or so while while these changes have been coming along and as I see that is not necessarily I mean that's companies um, being opportunistic both those setting up the the platforms but also companies as we know as the current today the government is introducing. Um, uh, or, or equal pay for equal work um, to avoid um, the use of um, contract labour and so on and reducing uh, the, the people being paid, uh, you know, the temporary workers being paid more or less than the permanent workers. So these are industrial relations issues which need, you know, which should be on the agenda anyway to sort of say when technology moves in, um, uh, shouldn't that be regulated? Shouldn't we um, uh, uh, ensure that the gains made by workers over the last 50 years aren't whittled away by little devices of this sort? Now, you've talked about increasing the number of public holidays in Australia from around 10. So we've got around six agreed on around the country. That's New Year's Day and Christmas Day mm. and, you know, Australia Day and Anzac Day. And... um. We average around 10 or 11, which is around the OECD average. Uh, so how many more public holidays can we have, uh, Tony? And um, I guess my big concern is we've got so many in December and January and then March and April, but there seems to be like this big drought between mm-hmm. April. Yeah. We've got one in June, one in October in New South Wales, and then nothing until Christmas. Well, yeah, and that's one of the anomalies. The next move, we'd want to call it the next wave towards the four day week is you just, well, I don't think it'll be diff- able to do it all at once, but one gradual way of doing it will be to add public holidays. And uh, the point is that because of those 10 uh, public holidays we already have, we've already got about six four day weeks out of the 52. Uh, and if you add that people's actual holiday weeks, it's sort of 10 weeks in which you're Either not working at all or working only four days because it's a public holiday. Um, and you're quite right, of course, that there's, uh, there's a, uh, a gap in the winter. And it's an interesting observation that, um, the northern winter holidays, uh, Christmas and New Year, which we celebrate here, um, as well, because you know, they were imported by you know, the colonists. Well, all these holidays were winter celebrations. Although my background is economics, I, I, I would say that the, the, the need for a 
a, a, a breakout from the, um, the, uh, the, the cold winter and, and the boring existence in a uh, leafless north with the snow and everything else. You want to break out and have a celebration and probably get a bit drunk. Um, and I guess that's what we're missing here. I mean, my view is always, I've always thought since I moved to Australia from Britain, Christmas and New Year should be celebrated in June and July in the Southern Hemisphere. So, so we have this nonsense of Christmas in, in, uh, in, in December, in the middle of summer. Anyway, so we could introduce some more public holidays in the winter time, as well as um, try to, to um, standardise them a bit across across the states, and, and that would be a gradual way to do it. You could say, you know, over the next ten years or five years, we will introduce another four public holidays, and they cost about one fiftieth of your wage bill, so two percent. Well, um, it's not a huge imposition on companies. I mean, the winter in Australia may not be really cold and miserable, but it may be quite dreary compared with the liveliness of summer. And so there is a case, I think, for introducing some wintertime additional holidays and maybe inventing some new festivals to be celebrated as a, you know, the festivals of Southern Cross or something, you know, to sort of, and, uh, uh, yeah, that type of thing. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, we have, I mean, we're desperately trying to do it in New South Wales with things like the Vivid Festival in uh, in uh, Sydney and so on. Well, that, and, and you can always see that's a, quite a good idea to, you know, in the dark of winter, you, you light up the city. Well, why, why not have a public holiday to go with it? And when should we be celebrating Tony Veal Day? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I, I think, I think I'm quite a long way from that. <laughs> Most people are, but I mean, there is that. Um, and perhaps, I mean, thinking of Australia particularly, perhaps we haven't got enough heroes, uh, or not recognizing the heroes we ought to have. We can't have a Ned Kelly day, can we? Well, if you're listening, Anthony Albanese, we would hope to have a Tony Veal day sometime in July or August because I'm really dying for a public holiday by then. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Tony Veal. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So maybe the key to better productivity isn't working harder, it's working better. And with technology doing so much more and more more and more of the time, perhaps it's time to reconsider how we work rather than just how long we work. Well, with that, it's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart at 4dayweek.com and adjunct professor Tony Veal from the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about 4dayweek.com on their website or check out our program page at disrupt.radio for more info and links to Tony's thoughts on the four-day week and more public holidays. Coming up, workplace cultures come into focus a lot over the last decade or so. It's no secret 
A happy workplace where everyone likes and respects each other is a productive workplace. But when more and more of us are working more and more from home, how can employers, managers and workers create and foster a positive workplace culture when we're often not in the same place? Find out on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and, you know, incorporate it. Online and on demand at Disrupt.radio.